Hello and welcome to this UActive event. My name is Natasha Foote. I am an agri-food and health reporter here with UActive and I have the pleasure of moderating today's discussion on the reform of the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP as it is more commonly known, and more specifically how EU member states will deliver on their CAP strategic plans. So some quick background for you before we get stuck in. So the reform of the EU's farming subsidy program, which will start in 2023 and run until 2027, is very nearly signed and sealed but not yet delivered. So through this reform, the Commission aims for a more flexible performance and results-based approach to the CAP, which takes into account local conditions and needs. And the national CAP strategic plans are a central part of how the Commission aims to achieve this. So the basic premise of these plans is that each member state comes up with their own individualised plan of action on sustainability measures in their agri-food sector, which is then approved by the Commission. And this forms the basis of how the next CAP reform will be rolled out in their country over the coming years. These CAP, reform, uh, these CAP strategic plans are also a key engine for delivering on the Commission's flagship food policy, the farm-to-fork strategy, which is not currently legally binding. So where are we at right now? Well, each member state is currently going through the process of writing these CAP strategic plans as we speak, and they are due for submission by the end of the year. And I also would like to point out this is the first time that member states will be doing uh, a plan like this. And if that sounds a bit complicated, well, that's because it is. There are plenty of open-ended questions here. How far will member states go in integrating sustainability aims? How will the Commission enforce this, if at all? Will these strategic plans live up to their promises and pave the way for sustainable agriculture, forestry and rural development in the EU and beyond? So that is what we are here to discuss today. But before we get stuck into the the debate. Let me just go over a few housekeeping points with you. I'm sure you're all very familiar with these by now, but just in case. So this is an interactive event, meaning that we welcome all of your questions, um, which I'll be monitoring as we go along. So you can submit these questions via the chat function, and you can find this at the bottom of your screen. So when submitting a question, please do identify yourself, don't be shy. Uh, keep your questions short and concise, and also indicate which of the panelists you'd like the question to go to. Do also feel free to add comments and questions as we go along. I'll be monitoring it the whole time. And we also encourage tweeting, so do join the online discussion on Twitter using the hashtag EADebates. So without further ado, let me introduce our speakers today. And with us today, uh, we have a range of, of, um, of panelists that bring a wealth of expertise. So I'm really excited to have what I'm sure will be a very rich discussion. So with us today, we have Tassos Hanyotis, who's the Deputy Director General at the European Commission's DG Agri. We have Green MEP Thomas Weitz. Celia Neesons, who is a Policy Officer for Agriculture at the European Environmental Bureau. Udo Hemmerling, who is chair of the Working Party on Direct Payments at EU's Farmers Association, Kup Kajaka. And last but certainly not least, we have Alan Matthews, who is a professor of European Agricultural Policy at the Department of Economics at Trinity College Dublin. And also like to point out, if you are a fellow CAP nerd like I am, you might also know him from his excellent blog on the CAP reform, which is an absolute treasure trove of information. I highly recommend you check that out. You're welcome for the plug there, Alan. <laughs> so a warm welcome to all of you. And I will now turn to each of you in turn for a short opening remark before we get stuck into the debate. So Tassos, let me come to you first for your opening remark. Thank you very much and uh, a nice afternoon to everybody. Um, I mean, you asked the question, how will the member states deliver in the CAP strategic plans? There are three things 
that uh, we have to address here is first what we know that they will do, what we hope that they will do, and what we expect uh, that they will do. In the what we know that they're going to do, the information is as of yet incomplete, although clearly we have been having very informal and continuous contacts with member states in uh, helping them to prepare their strategic plans. I have to admit also that the information is not uh, the same in all member states. Some of them are more advanced than others. All of them, however, are working uh, towards uh, submitting these uh, plans. What we hope to get out of these plans, we're clearly a much higher level of ambition in all the specific objectives that the CAP is uh, aimed, uh, aimed to achieve. And if we have a higher level of ambition in these uh, CAP-specific objectives, we do have a pretty high level of ambition uh, to targets that relate to the farm-to-fork uh, strategy. And what we expect uh, out of these strategic plans? The first thing we expect respect uh, uh, to the recommendation process and the recommendations made to the member states. And this uh, stressing the fact that it's in the recommendations as such and in the SWOT analysis, the analysis on the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats that we saw member states facing, we didn't really have a lot of uh, disputes. Most of the recommendations and the analysis behind it is very common between us and the member states. And that's why, based on these recommendations, we do expect that these strategic plans will uh, reflect a very high level of ambition that is required to be able to meet all the type of commitments we have taken over the years, uh, from the Paris Agreement to the commitments that are stemming also from uh, the uh, successive uh, proposals that the Commission had made, and also from the CAP uh, reform uh, itself, because the CAP reform, the, uh, the underlying feature of the CAP reform, is the need to strengthen the environmental ambition of the common agricultural policy. And finally, uh, in, when we assess uh, these strategic plans, what we expect to see is a strategic approach that would look into the long uh, term uh, delivery of these uh, objectives, but also will look in a manner that is really integrated when it has to look at the uh, environmental, the economic, and the social uh, dimension of the strategic plans. We should not forget that in addressing uh, environmental, higher environmental ambition, there are ways and best practices in place that would allow us, we hope and we expect, to do it in a manner that does not harm economic and social uh, gains and efficiency, but uh, clearly move uh, things forward. And let me repeat what I said in the recent Farm to Fork strategy. I think this is, uh, sorry, the recent Farm to Fork conference. I think this is achievable. It's clearly not going to be uh, straightforward and uh, uniform across all member states, but also clearly it is something that uh, is necessary. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tassos, touching upon many issues we're going to dig into a lot deeper um, during the, the debate. So, Thomas, now let me turn to you for your opening remarks. 
Thank you, Natasha. I, first of all, where did we come from? We had a relatively ambitious proposal from the Commission that was already weakened a bit in the parliamentarian debate, going back to Trilogue. They're being weakened again by several member states. And now we're seeing the question or we're facing the question, how are member states going to implement the goals which are now uh, considered to be part of the cap? Uh, how are they going to deliver in practice? Uh, and in fact, um, the, what I know up to now from the plans, uh, we can see very much uh, the influence uh, that COPA is having on uh, several member states uh, because the announcement of COPA earlier was we need you, so the European Union, to pay farmers for what they are doing anyway. And this is uh, actually, I would say, something that we see in most of the CAP strategic plans now materializing. So I see the ambitions as relatively low. Uh, I mean, if you still recall what the Court of Auditors um, found out, his findings about the last um, uh, cap and the last deliveries and, and national plans, was that the greening, the, as we had it, was not delivering on the expectations of the European Union and not delivering on the expectations what these funds were originally meant for. So just going on uh, with the stuff that we did up to now will not solve the problem, neither the biodiversity problem, nor the decertification, the erosion, uh, the dead zones that we're creating in the sea, uh, the high pressure on biodiversity, the lack of uh, CO2 sequestration, uh, which we would have an enormous potential for in agriculture. So it doesn't look all too good. And just to give you two or three examples of low ambition, uh, as, as much as I know now, I mean, the CAP strategic plans have not been submitted to the Commission yet, but I have some insights as well into the German as also in the Austrian drafting. And what I see there is, well, sometimes nice headlines, like a headline saying, well, we need to engage into wetland preservation. Sounds great. But if you look at the details uh, of this draft, it says, well, let's reduce the deepness of plowing uh, up to 30 centimeters. Well, you know, plowing for 30 centimeters in a wetland that has stored a lot of CO2, a lot of carbon, will lead to re-emission of carbon, and it will simply not serve the purpose. So you see a nice headline, but then under that, just minor improvements which are not going to meet the goal if it stays like that. But uh, luckily, that debate in Germany is not over yet. Uh, or I give you a second example. When it comes to carbon farming, sounds great. Yeah, well, I, I'm a big fan of uh, using agriculture and forestry to sequest CO2 into the soil. But then if you look into the details, are we really talking about long-lasting sequestration? Are we talking about humus uh, clay complexes which are able to store the carbon for a long time? Or are we talking about short-term carbon sequestration which is then re-emitted in the next year because of deep plowing again? So the devil lies in the details. Or just the last example, what I see in Austria happening. Uh, there, uh, even with the green uh, participation in the government, but our conservative agricultural minister tried to move the separate funding for organic farming, which was heavily contributing to Austria growing its organic sector towards 25%. So moving this from the second pillar into the first pillar and just making it one of many eco schemes, like kind of a top up for agricultural sector uh, in the organic spectrum. And why so? Just to free on the other side in the second 
second pillar, investment money. And there it, it's getting interesting because what kind of investment do we, are we talking about? Are we talking about investment on pork stables getting even bigger and bigger and bigger and pulling, uh, pushing out smaller farmers off the market, putting even more pressure on the prices that farmers get for their products? Or are we talking about the needed investments into the transition towards uh, agroecological methods, also in conventional farming, so maybe investments into machinery for technical weeding instead of using herbicides and so on. And there, again, you see a lack of definition, you see a lack of ring fencing for the investments uh, for the right purpose. Uh, so we have to watch out that we do not see actually measurements uh, in one pillar and the other pillar that are contradicting each other uh, and that are basically just designed uh, to, to uh, strengthen the ability of the sector to absorb as much money as possible without really meeting the environmental goals and by the way also not the rural development goals because if we don't stop the closing down of hundreds of farms every single day in Europe we will end up with a totally industrialized agriculture and that's going to be it. So lots of nice words and not enough action to summarise there from you. Um, Thomas, you touched upon a lot of technical details. I'm hoping we're going to get stuck into those um, a bit more during the debate. And you also mentioned COPA. So maybe it's natural to turn uh, to Udo. I'm sure you've got something to say um, here. Maybe uh, I can come to you next for your opening statement, please. OK, thank you. Good afternoon to everybody. Uh, I will just raise for the start three core points. Uh, first point, the uh, coming cap reform will really mean a major shift in agricultural support towards uh, environmental, agri-environmental measures. I just give you the example for Germany. We now today have about 900 million euros per year for agri-environmental measures and altogether with the coming eco schemes and the expansion of the second pillar budget, um, we will see 2.4 billion euros for agri-environmental measures in 2025-26. So uh, this is really a major shift and uh, please do not underestimate this. Um, this means really a major shift for the farmers. And uh, in the, at the initial point, this means also some income loss for farmers because, you know, the basic payment will go down. Uh, for example, in Germany, about uh, 100 euros per hectare. So the money will shift to new challenges. Second point, we have a very tight time frame ahead of us. Um, we as farmers, we say we need clear, clearance until next summer, because next summer the farmers do their planting plans for uh, 2023. Um, on the other hand, we need also time to assess, to discuss the proposed measures, uh, the new eco schemes, for example, um, if they are realistic, if the farmer will really uh, take them up and things like that. And the final point uh, I just want to make, um, we are a bit skeptic and I'm personally uh, quite skeptic that um, the CAP strategic plan process 
will be kind of overloaded with the farm to fork strategy. Uh, basically, the uh, trialogue parties have made a basic decision. Um, farm to fork strategy is not a legal part of cap strategic plans, um, but uh, as far as possible, things have to be included. Um, so, but uh, for this point, for example, uh, we have very different, well, also national situation. I give you also my example from, uh, from Germany. When it comes to animal welfare, we will have national plans for animal welfare. When it comes to climate protection, we have a national funding um, from emission trading budget, uh, also for forestry and agriculture. And uh, you have to see the whole picture. And it would be a bit a short thing to say, where's climate protection in the cap strategic plans in Germany? Where is animal welfare? Well, it's in our national budget, in our national measures. You have to see the whole picture, um, which is a bit beyond the cap strategic plans. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. So, uh, so Thomas saying maybe there's uh, not enough ambition, you saying maybe there's too much. I think I can see some interesting uh, discussions coming here. Um, Celia, let me turn to you now for your opening statement. Thank you, Natasha. Um, probably everyone can guess which side I'm going to go towards. Um, on, on, on our side, we see very clearly that there is not enough ambition. And we're not saying this just um, because we're, you know, grumpy NGOs. We're saying this because we have done an extensive analysis over the last month or so of the plans in consultation with our members, also in collaboration with other um, NGO networks. We are gathering intelligence on what is being done at national level. And what we are seeing is a complete mismatch between what's being decided in the plans and the scale of the challenges that are facing the agriculture sector. And we're not even just talking of the environmental challenges, which are real, as we saw this summer with heat waves and droughts and floods happening all at the same time across Europe, but also the socioeconomic challenges um, and the need to distribute payments more fairly, etc. The plans are being developed by member states uh, from the information that we are getting are continuing by and large a business as usual scenario which flies completely in the face of the green deal but of course and not only of that also of political commitments that have been made by every single government national government when it comes to biodiversity when it comes to climate change the sustainable development goals etc and also it flies in the face of legally binding obligations that already exist in EU environmental laws. So it's very well to say that we can't overload cap strategic plans with new obligations coming from the Green Deal, but even with existing obligations, we are not quite up to the task. Um, and what we observe in particular is that even though this whole reform really relies on the new model whereby member states identify needs and then tailor their inter interventions through a strategic planning process, this is not what's happening. What's happening at national level is not strategic planning. There is an identification of need, and there is a, a sort of identification and, and design of interventions. 
and there is a decision on the budget allocations. And those different processes do not follow a logic uh, model in, in all places. In some places, they're completely separate with a political decision coming in the middle of the process and ignoring the technical work to then decide we put money there. That's the political decision. That is it. In the very worst cases, we're seeing, for example, in, in uh, Hungary, in Greece, in Cyprus, in Romania, these are really the, the bad students at the back of the class where NGOs don't have any information at all. It seems the strategic planning process is not even happening. There is no information on what's going to be in eco schemes, about what's going to be done in conditionality. Nothing. Huge delays. We have a month and a half, two months before the, the deadline, and there is no information. Most countries are doing a bit better, but we are still seeing that they are respecting the letter of the strategic planning idea, but not the spirit, as I, as I was just saying. Even though the challenges that are identified are significant, the ambition of the interventions is generally low, there are gaps, lots of issues are not addressed. And so these major shifts that we just heard about from, uh, uh, from Udo, we're not seeing it happening. Most of the environmental money is being used to pay for, in many cases, what farmers are already doing. So the budget is being spread very thinly on what's already being done. And then the farmers who are the most ambitious end up with very little money to reward their efforts. So it's quite worrying. Um, and we really, at this stage, we have a, a still some time to, to try and steer the ship in the right direction. So our call is really strongly to the Commission to raise the bar, um, both in the technical work and in and political level, to ensure that member states are really um, meeting their obligations, not just looking at the Green Deals, but also the obligations that already exist. And the first step for that, that we've been calling on the Commission to, to do, is to be transparent, to publish the draft plans that will be submitted uh, at the end of the year, for example, so that citizens can know what is being done with their taxpayers' money um, and, and how this money is being spent in the agriculture sector. Thank you, Celia, highlighting, yes, indeed, the deadline is looming, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, lastly, but not least, let me come to you, Alan, for your opening statement. Thank you very much, uh, Natasha, and good afternoon to everybody. I think we all know what we would like to see uh, in terms of implementation. Uh, we would like to see the use of strategic planning. So based on the needs assessment and the SWOT analysis, uh, a prioritization of objectives, uh, the design of interventions, setting of targets and milestones, and of course, doing all of this within a participatory uh, framework, including uh, all stakeholders and not least uh, the state uh, authorities involved with in environmental protection. Uh, we would like to see uh, a high level of environmental and climate ambition, and we would like to see the interventions designed in terms of giving value for money uh, to the European taxpayer. And I guess, of course, we have to wait until we see what the draft plans uh, look like at the end of the year. Uh, but it is, I think, likely in at least some cases that the reality uh, will be somewhat different. And I think there's a, a number of reasons for this. Uh, and the first is indeed the timing issue. Uh, uh, national administrations, even where there is a, a desire to, uh, to fulfill the spirit of the cap reform, are under huge time pressure. 
Um, I'm not aware of whether any member state has actually published its uh, its draft strategic plan uh, this month, October, uh, but certainly uh, all of those have to go through a strategic environmental assessment uh, by law, an appropriate assessment. Uh, this will take a month. It has uh, These assessments have to go for, uh, for, for public consultation. Uh, there has to be some time for the national administrations to take any recommendations into account. And all of this has to be done uh, by the end of the year, which uh, is obviously putting pressure on some of the desirable features in terms of broad consultation uh, and actually giving uh, uh, administrations time to, to really design effective schemes. So it does raise the question whether uh, we can meet the, uh, um, uh, the end of year deadline, whether the commission needs to show uh, additional flexibility. And of course that then comes up against the point that Uda was making that farmers do also need certainty uh, at an early point in time. There are, of course, these political economy pressures. So maybe it is a little bit naive and perhaps idealistic to think of strategic planning in this sort of technocratic uh, way of setting objectives, designing instruments, uh, and so on. It's clearly a highly political process. And this is because, of course, uh, the distribution of resources is at stake. So when it comes to, for example, whether uh, we have capping or not, you know, this is, this is uh, often decided on the basis of, uh, you know, the balance of interests in a particular uh, member state. And the same with eco-schemes. Uh, it's not necessarily whether they are going to be effective in achieving those objectives. It's ensuring that all uh, uh, types and, and, and farming systems are able to, to benefit uh, because uh, one group doesn't want to see uh, all the money going in, 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 in the other group's uh, direction. So those political economy issues uh, are clearly coming to the fore. Um, the, the, the reporting arrangements uh, have become extremely complicated. So there is a huge administrative challenge uh, and we can come back to discussing, you know, whether the uh, the indicators uh, are appropriate, um, uh, and indeed whether uh, we don't have some overload in terms of what we're asking administrations to do. And then finally, in terms of the eco-schemes, which of course are uh, one of the main novelties of this uh, CAP uh, reform. And here administrations, they have a trinity of objectives that they must fulfill. So they have a, a, a budget ceiling uh, that they must meet on an annual basis. They have an enrollment uh, or uptake target, so they need to get sufficient farmers into the scheme. Uh, and finally, they have a, a projected unit value, how much the individual farmer is going to get uh, per hectare for the practices that are uh, required. And those three objectives have got to balance. And that's extremely difficult when you're trying to set targets and, and plans, you know, up to six years uh, in advance. And it's clear that member states are playing it cautious here and that they are going for the, uh, the, the option that is likely to lead to the greatest enrollment. So we, we are shallow schemes. Uh, um, and and uh, we, may, we may see, if you like, the maintenance of uh, uh, particular ecosystem services, but whether we will see much change in management as a result of eco-schemes uh, remains open to question. Uh, so those would be the, uh, the points that I would feel are important uh, at this stage in the debate, Natasha. Thank you. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for all of your opening statements. So let's get stuck in uh, to the debate today. Um, Tassos, I'm going to turn to you first to set the scene a little bit for our discussion. Um, so I've obviously briefly touched upon different stages that have led up to the drafting of these CAP strategic plans. I know you and, uh, you and Alan both mentioned the SWOT analysis. Perhaps you go into a little bit more detail um, about the support that's been on offer from the Commission for this, um, considering it's the first time that member states are doing this. You know, how has the Commission been active in shaping the future of these plans? Well, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, I mean, the Commission has been active in shaping these plans uh, from the beginning that we made this proposal. I mean, we, we always had dialogue with the Member States and we have started a dialogue in uh, designing, uh, I mean, helping the Member States to put up the strategic plans even before the Farm Support Strategy was put in place. So there is a series of meetings at the technical level in which we explain to member states what is the logic of the specific objectives we have, what uh, are the underlying uh, analytical uh, foundations that made us think that we have to increase the level of ambition everywhere. And in the process of this, uh, since uh, it's been months, and we spent the most of uh, this year working bilaterally with member states, uh, explaining to them what they have to do, receiving questions for them, what one or the other uh, item implies, but very specifically focusing on the on the needs approach. And we have gone step by step. First, the SWOT analysis, then the needs approach, the link of these two indicators. So there are uh, toolkits that will explain to member states what exactly they're going to do. But I think it's best if I give a concrete example of how to go about it, because you know, perfect is always the worst enemy of the good. And it's obviously that if we sit in our offices, we can all design perfect uh, policies and strategies. But in the real world, we have to see what is available. First thing, the baseline is known. So we know how to uh, answer the first question that some of the speakers already answered, that they know that the level of ambition is not going to be higher and people will keep doing what they're doing. Well, I'm sorry, but how do we know that? We know the baseline and we haven't even seen what will be coming from the member states. Let me take one issue as soil, which is very interesting because we don't have a soil directive and we can keep talking about legally binding obligations, but we don't even have a soil directive. And yet we have a policy whose leverage is exactly in terms of practices that help improving what is happening in the soil. We have put an indicator that measures improvements in the soil. We have a target that actually addresses this, a target that before it was set up at the EU level as part of the Farm to Fork strategy was part of all the discussions we had in the preparation of the cap reform. Do we really need to wait for the Green Deal targets to realize that when it comes to soil management, we have to improve all the practices applied in 100% of land in the European Union. I thought we had solved that, that already years ago. And what we also need to, to look is, when we're going to look at the strategic plans of the member states, we will have to see what are the practices that they want to promote, how these practices meet the specific problems that we and the member states have identified. There are hot spots where we have to do much more than other areas. The joint research sector has done a whole literature review which is available to member states that demonstrates what practices work under which conditions where the situation is more uh, mixed 
And then we have to look on two things. The first is where the money goes. And I, I think we need to remind people that we didn't, it wasn't us that proposed ring fencing because we wanted to leave more flexibility. Ring fencing is a reality. So ring fencing is a reality. Member states have to implement specific measures. But then they have to show that these particular measures are able to move their level of ambition higher. This is what exactly we're going to assess. And a final point here, uh, I don't know if farmers are already doing what they're doing. As long as the environment is changing and it's changing in a, a more or in a less favorable uh, way for farmers because of the climate challenges, if they keep doing what they're doing, this already uh, would indicate that they have a certain degree of resilience. But on the ground, farmers, not all, but most farmers are not simply doing what they used to do, but they're trying to clearly adjust to the new situation. And a lot of the capacity of farmers to uh, be able to adjust to this situation will be linked to the type of measures that member states are going to take, and we will look at them on what type of advice they're ready to provide to member states. Because without functioning farm advisory systems, all the discussion that we're having here is purely theoretical. And talking about adjusting to new situations, let's talk about the green architecture uh, in these CAP plans. So we have these eco schemes. I think Alan said this, called them the main novelties of this CAP reform. Um, so these are the environmental actions designed to reward farmers for certain agricultural practices that are considered uh, useful for delivering environmental goals. Um, Udo, these eco-schemes represent a, a major shift, uh, it, it, well, some would say they represent a major shift in the way that the CAP works. Um, could you outline how you see this impacting the sector? Yeah, okay. Um, I will really agree to uh, what, what Alan said, um, that the planning process of the eco-schemes lead quite to a defensive offer of eco schemes to the farmers what do i mean we have now the draft in germany for eco schemes and this there we see that the payment for the agro-environmental measures are 30 percent or sometimes 50 percent lower than what we are used to know in the second pillar payments for comparable measures. So this is really a core point um, that echo schemes are calculated quite low. And so it's not uh, attractive for so many farmers. Uh, second point, just uh, to think, I think uh, Celia mentioned, uh, is the question um, carbon storage measures uh, in agri-environment measures or um, eco-schemes. Um, we made also a proposal for rewarding farmers for keeping grassland and keeping higher grade of carbon uh, for not plowing and so on. And uh, our government said no. The farmers do this either way. So we are not uh, rewarding them extra. But this is in the completely um, opposite to what we call about carbon 
what, what we talk about carbon farming uh, strategy, uh, we need to reward farmers for their um, climate-friendly practices and not just saying, oh, they are doing it already, so we don't uh, reward them. That's, that's a bit too short. Thank you. And in terms of the options available for eco-schemes, I like to think of these options available to member states like a bit of a menu, you know, where member states can choose their own combination of eco-schemes, kind of a la carte situation. Um, of course, you know, the different dishes that they choose off the menu will have a, a huge impact. And I know, Alan, you already um, mentioned, the, you know, the impact, the fact that maybe there's a, not a clear long-term view on this, maybe the uptake of the eco-schemes are uncertain. Um, in your opinion, Alan, how will that shape member states' decisions on eco-schemes they're taking right now? Well, I think it, 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 it member states, Udo says that in Germany they, they have been a defensive position. I would perhaps say it, it, it's leading to a lot of caution in terms of the approach to eco-schemes. So member states might like to be more ambitious, but they are aware that if they don't get the enrollment uh, that they uh, need, uh, they could well end up not using all of their minimum budget. And uh, some of that would have to go back to, to, to Brussels because with the pillar one payment, you cannot keep it from one year to the next. And therefore uh, they are playing safe. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we do see, uh, or we will see, and uh, of course, Justice is right, we haven't yet seen the, uh, the draft plans, but um, the, uh, we will see, I think, um, a, a lot of situations where indeed farmers are being paid uh, uh, for practices that by and large they are doing anyway. Now, in some cases, this may be justified. Um, but you know we do need also to incentivize uh, the transition towards more sustainable farming systems. We do need to see changes in farm management on the ground, um, and you know it's still an open question um, uh, as to whether uh, th th this will indeed be the case. I mean, one of the things I suppose um, about eco schemes. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that, uh, at least from an agri-environment point of view, that annual uh, schemes are really uh, the most appropriate uh, approach. It seems to me agri-environment uh, uh, initiatives, you know, are a somewhat longer term commitment on the part of farmers. But one of the uh, advantages is, of course, that member states can revise these schemes um, on an annual basis, unlike uh, uh, the Pillar 2 schemes where a farmer enters a contract at, in year one and that, you know, is set then for the, the five or seven year period of the, of, of the, uh, of this, of the scheme. Um, so there is perhaps the potential uh, when we see what individual member states are doing uh, that we can learn from each other and, and, and that, you know, successful schemes may be transferred over, over time. Now, that's an optimistic view, I agree, um, and it will require a lot of pushing, um, uh, you know, to achieve that outcome. But it is, you know, it is a potential advantage of eco-schemes uh, that we could see a ratcheting up of ambition over time. Yeah, it's definitely true. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned this, you can revise over time, learn and, and, and move and revise, um, which could be seen as a positive thing. Um, Thomas, I know you're on the edge of your seat wanting to come in with a comment on this. Um, so let me hear your reaction to what we've heard so far. But also, uh, let me add a question for you. Um, you know, there's been quite a lot of criticism about the different eco schemes that are on the menu for members to, member states to choose from. You know, in your opinion, are these too broad, not broad enough? You know, what is your take on, on this on this menu on offer? 
Well, first of all, to answer Tassos, how do we know? Well, I'm involved into drafting of the CAP strategic plan in Austria, where I have information from Germany, Belgium government, Irish government. So we, we know quite something about the process that is going on. And, and then to be very concrete, what are we talking about? Uh, like uh, an echo scheme uh, to have crop rotation. It was proposed by the Commission, it was proposed by the Parliament, it was downplayed by the Council. Crop rotation is a very easy measurement to reduce your pesticides, to increase positive impact on biodiversity and to have a positive impact on your soil. There's no question, it's not a question of organic or non-organic, that meets the requirements in every form of agriculture. And is it still there? No, it's not. No crop rotation as a condition for eco schemes. Second example, a, a real shift from artificial fertilizers to green fertilizers. Artificial fertilizer means one to two kilo of gas to produce one kilo of artificial fertilizer plus emissions of NO, NOx uh, than at the field. Um, and, and, and so uh, climate related gases. So um, shifting to, renew, uh, to, to green um, fertilizers would mean having plants collecting CO2 via photosynthesis, which we're then digging into the ground and through this, this increasing the fertility of the soil. Is it in the uh, CAP strategic plan? Is it proposed as one of the eco schemes? Not on a big scale, just as one small added measurement, not on a big scale to do that shift. Or a land-based animal husbandry that we're actually only subsidizing animal fattening and animal production when it's related on the land a farmer actually has to feed its animals. Maybe not 100%, but 70 or 80%. Do we have that land-based uh, animal husbandry? No, it has been negotiated out of eco schemes. While animal husbandry and fattening is one of the main emitters of climate gases, methane, and so on. Uh, and then capping, last but not least, uh, when we talk about rural areas, where we also see, I mean, the more diversity you have in agriculture, the more spaces between the fields, between the crops, uh, between the land you have, and the better it is for biodiversity. So regions that have small and medium farming stills, like Slovenia or Austria or parts of Romania, they don't have that biodiversity problems like other agricultural regions that went industrial and do we see a real capping, so a real support for the small and medium-sized farmers? No, again, not. And unfortunately, Copacoceca didn't really negotiate for that. They negotiated for the 5% big farmers, but not for the 95% small farmers. But where I am with Copa is that we need to ensure that farmers get a fair price for their product and they get pay for their extra work they need to do to become more environmental. There, I'm fully on their side. And we need importation standards or tolls or whatever to protect our production because if we demand high standards from producers and we do not demand the same high standards on imported goods we're going to ruin, ruin partly our agricultural production and there I'm on the same side as Copa. And Celia I know you're also uh, looking to come in on this topic of eco schemes I mean I just to add a question here the items on the menu, you know, there's a lot of discussion. We hear a lot of really nice words, agroforestry, agroecology. Um, it's been pointed out by a number of civil society organisations that they don't actually ap appear maybe as much as they would like them to in the recommendations. I mean, what is your take on this um, and how can member states be expected to include these kind of eco-schemes if they are not recommended to do so? Um Okay, I'll try to keep that question uh, on the back of my mind to just comment on, on the discussion that was just uh, happening right now. So just because my name was mentioned earlier on the topic of carbon farming and what we need to um, pay farmers for, from our side, there's a very important distinction that needs to be made 
between the maintenance of basic practices that farmers may already be, do be, be doing, like putting cover crops in winter or having a buffer strips along a watercourse. This belongs in conditionality. Crop rotation as well, that Thomas was just mentioning. These elements are more or less included in the EU framework for conditionality, but the way in which they will be implemented at national level is in the hands of member states. And what we are seeing is that generally the ambition is very low. When we have information, because actually it's quite striking that a lot of member states are already planning their voluntary measures without having decided on how they will implement conditionality, which is supposed to be the baseline. So we don't even know where the floor stands when we already start to plan what we will be paying for on top of that floor. And, and these basic practices should not be paid for. These, this is the baseline, but we do need to provide money for farmers who are doing really beneficial uh, systems like agroforestry, high nature value farming, etc. We need to help them maintain those valuable systems in place. But when it comes to carbon farming, for example, we can't just pay for what already exists. We need to incentivize farmers to go beyond. And that's a point that Ellen already made, so I won't uh, say more on that. On your question of um, how do we have more ambition, I'm guessing you were referring to the Commission recommendations here, um, and you mentioned recommendations. Yes, I was, yeah. Okay, um, that's what our, our members are trying to do day in, day out. They are making recommendations to their national governments, um, but it's very difficult. In some cases, they are not even being uh, listened to. They are not getting meetings. They are not invited to comment on documents. They are not getting information about what their government is thinking about. So it's incredibly difficult to, to have a constructive exchange and, and to provide, um, you know, recommendations uh, based on, on their expertise when they're not, when the door is closed. Um, when the door is somewhat open, um, they are trying to, to encourage uh, more action and, you know, trying to not just look at eco-schemes, which are just one measure. It's really important, of course, also to look at the use of investment support, the use of agri-environment climate measures, etc. And we count on the Commission to also, where those elements were included in the recommendations, make sure that member states are really uh, acting on that. And uh, we have heard positive commitment, but the test will be, the proof will be in the pudding, I think is the, the phrase. So we are waiting to see how the commission will react to those plans when they are tabled, really. A good phrase, I like that one. Um, Tassos, I see your hand. I was going to come straight to you. Um, Celia mentioned making sure member states acting uh, are acting on, on this. Um, you know, these plans have been earmarked as the main engine for delivering on the goals of the Green Deal, which is not, you know, legally binding. The question on everyone's lips, of course, is, you know, how can the Commission enforce this kind of linkage? Thanks. Uh, I was raising my hand because I, I cannot type on the internal chat. I wanted to comment, and I will start with what Celia said, because he raised two extremely important issues. The first one is conditionality, which nobody had mentioned, including me before. When we talk about the baseline and we talk about the need to increase the level of ambition, if we don't increase the level of ambition on conditionality, I think we can forget about the rest. And that's why it is extremely important in this discussion to identify factually what are the problems that member states have to address. Because this is what will tell us whether particular measures 
really go in the direction of increasing the level of ambition or not. And here, uh, it is uh, important to note that, you know, some practices that appear benign are pretty important. Keeping, for example, permanent grassland might seem to be relatively easy. But if you don't have an economically viable uh, farm there, and you turn this into arable land, then the cost to the environment is going to be pretty significant. In other areas, we need to focus on other type of challenge that we have. So the first thing that is very important is the conditionality. The second that is also very important is the issue of transparency. And we have uh, put pressure on member states and we keep repeating on them that this process to be credible has to have a wider participation of all the stakeholders uh, in the preparation of the strategic plans. Because if the member states avoid to do that, they will face it, of course, in the next stage of the discussion where people will uh, validly raise questions about whether their opinion has been taken into account or not. And what is very important to keep in mind right now is that when it comes to transparency, the type of challenges that we face are evident and known to everybody. That's why I stressed before that when it came to the SWOT analysis and the needs-based analysis, at least there, nobody could hide. So we have a starting point that is important. Finally, on the legally binding issue. And I saw also on the Twitter, uh, I'm not supposed to follow it, but I have to follow it as you invited everybody to be active there. Yet there was even the question of what the commissioner said and whether it's a contradiction. Now, let me very clear and let me remind people a couple of things. When we're preparing the common agricultural policy, and one that Thomas said was more ambition than uh, what came out between council and parliament, uh, when we made this preparation, we started with four workshops in, uh, in, as part of the impact assessment. The first one was on new societal needs and a focus on the use of uh, antibiotics in animal feed. And it's linked not only with human health, but also with animal health and animal welfare. The second was uh, focusing on voluntary versus uh, mandatory agroenvironmental measures and what we need to do to increase the overall uh, level of ambition. The third was on the climatic risks and what type of risk management we should have to address them. And the fourth was on the uh, poverty reduction and the social dimension of the common agricultural policy. Every single uh, target that is part of the farm to fork uh, strategy, every single one was already part of the uh, proposal we made for the future common agricultural policy. We didn't have an EU-wide target, but we had very clearly the requirement for member states to set targets at the national level that clearly express a higher level of ambition and the link of these measures in achieving the overall uh, orientation of the future cap. So for me, this debate on whether it's legally or uh, not legally binding, I don't see where it leads. One could easily say cynically, so what? Do we have to address environmental problems? Do we have to respond to climate change? Well, if we have to do, obviously, we have, first of all, to make sure that when it comes to soil organic matter, things get much better than what they are. In fact, on soil, on air, on water and biodiversity, clearly we have to arrive at a situation that is much better tomorrow than what it is uh, today. So, I mean, let's work on that instead of having a ping pong about procedural issues. That's my personal feeling on that. And I, I don't see why 
we we waste so much energy in this debate instead of focusing on what some of you put the criticism how we're going to assess the level of ambition i'm telling you we will assess the level of ambition on something that is measurable on the ground in the soil in air in water and in biodiversity and also without hurting the income uh, or, or farmers or the social dimension yeah, thank you for that. We'll definitely come back to the monitoring point, uh, the monitoring issue you raised there. I just have one follow-up question for you, um, just a, a short one. Um, your active reported back in July that the EU's Agricultural Commissioner, Janusz Wojciechowski, said he doesn't see a situation where a member state's national plan would be rejected by the Commission for failing to align with the Green Deal. Um, he was saying instead he was banking on the power of persuasion to, make mem to, to, to encourage member states um, to do this. Uh, I suppose my question is, in, in your opinion, would the Commission reject a plan for not adequately aligning with the, the Green Deal, and, and should it? Well, that's the advantage that politicians, they have more persuasive power than bureaucrats than us. What we have to do is make sure that when we make the assessment of the plans of the Member States, we are transparent, we are accurate in the facts that come to them, and the College will take the decision on the basis of the information we have, so I cannot prejudge. Uh, not only the decision of the college, but I cannot prejudge what we haven't received yet. Thank you for that. And you know, the discussion so far has centered on you know how to put um, how to put more of the farm to fork strategy um, into these uh, cap strategic plans. Um, Udo, in your opening remarks, you were talking about the issue of overloading farmers and ensuring, you know, balancing the ambition with not overloading farmers. So I'm looking to you now for the farmer's perspective you know, on, on this concern of overloading, like how complicated this CAP strategic plan process is for farmers. Um, basically, it's, it's two different questions, overloading the farmers and overloading the um, admission process of the CAP strategic plans that are different points for certain, uh, for certain view. Uh, when it comes to farmers, well, we, we have then a clear list for the eco-scheme measures. We have a clear list for second pillar measures. Uh, the farmers can choose. Um, we have the conditionality, which is really still a long uh, catalog, which will be a catalog of 100 pages of paper, farmers have to follow. Um, but uh, in the question of the agro-environmental measures are mainly, uh, are they attractive for the farmers uh, also to, to, to earn a bit of money from doing more for uh, the environment? And the other thing is the political process. And uh, I can just repeat it. Um, I'm a bit skeptic that the uh, farm to fork strategy challenges can overload the process of the next eight or ten months uh, what we have. So the farmers need clearance until next summer. Uh, and so we need a kind of clear and swift um, assessment process of the cap strategic plans like uh, Tassel said. Thank you.
And turning now to this issue of, of, of timeline, now we've all, I think we've heard from all of the panellists this, um, this pressure of the looming deadline of the end of the year. Um, so a number of member states have expressed they're struggling with this tight timeline. I know um, we actually recently reported as many as a third of member states are struggling and some have even said they might miss the deadline um, entirely. So Alan, um, in your opinion, what impact could this have on the implementation of the cap reform, this kind of delay? Well, of course, we don't know whether there will be a, a, a delay. Obviously, if a member state cannot, at the moment, they must get their plans in by the uh, the end of this year. Um, uh, it's up to the Commission, I suppose, to see what uh, flexibility the regulation uh, gives them in terms of whether member states can submit some of their documents uh, at a later stage or whether everything must be submitted on, on, on day one. Um, the issue that I, I, I see is that, you know, in the rush at the end, and these, these uh, plans are going to determine how uh, money is spent over a five-year period until 2027. So, you know, if it makes sense to allow another couple of weeks uh, into January in order to um, uh, perhaps get a, 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 a somewhat more um, uh, thoughtful uh, plan in, in, in place, uh, that seems to me perhaps worth, um, uh, worth allowing for. Um, and if the regulation doesn't allow, uh, there might be the opportunity in November when the Parliament comes to, uh, to vote on the regulation to, to make some minor change, uh, uh, to give a little bit of extra time if indeed it, it proves in, in mid-November that you know, more than just one or two member states are going to, 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 to face difficulties. And uh, obviously we see a number of different member states struggling with different things, everyone being on different levels. Um, Celia, you mentioned that you know, your, your members were looking at individual member states. I mean, what's your feeling about what isn't, isn't going well in different member states on the ground? Do you have some specific examples to offer us? Um, yeah, so in addition to some of the elements that I've already mentioned, so for example, one key concern is that in, still in many countries there is just no information. In some countries, no information at all, but in some countries, no information, for example, on conditionality, and that's a big problem. Um, but in addition to that, we're uh, also starting to see information on, on uh, what eco-schemes will be. Uh, we are seeing that quite often the amount of money that is put for a specific eco-scheme doesn't really match the level of ambition. So we have ambitious schemes with low funding that are not likely to be enough of an incentive. We have very unambitious schemes with a lot of money that are essentially just a top up on income support because they're not actually requiring farmers to do much. Um, just an example that I was looking at earlier um, was, for example, a scheme requiring farmer to use the FAST tool, so the farm uh, sustainability tools for nutrients. Um, and if they use that and also do liming, they would get paid, uh, I think it was something like 160 euro per hectare in, in a central eastern uh, country. So quite a lot of money for no guaranteed environmental uh, benefit here. Um, so it's a big mi mixed bag um, and, and, and that is really quite concerning. Overall, we're also seeing that even if in some countries eco schemes are reasonably good, there are big gaps. So individual measures might be good, but when you add it all up, it doesn't get you to where we need to be. 
or to where we need to get to, rather. Um, we know that this decade is absolutely crucial for tackling biodiversity loss and climate change. This cap will run up until 2027. So we really need to make progress. And when you add up the eco schemes, measures in the second pillar, etc., our members are telling us it's not going to do the trick. And then on top of that, we're also hearing that uh, several measures are still going to be in place that were um, in place previously that have had negative impacts on the environment. The worst case here is, for example, investments, uh, investment support for irrigation in uh, southern countries, in Spain, in Portugal, in, in parts of France, where we are using water unsustainably. There have been evidence uh, from case studies, from in the evaluation study of the Commission on, on this, that this measure, investment support for irrigation, has had negative impacts. And our members are telling us it's not changing. This is going to continue. We're very worried. We're also seeing investment support being used for um, investments in livestock production, which could lead to an intensification of livestock in some parts of Europe. <laughs> Thomas is, uh, is agreeing with me. That's, that's a really big issue. So not only is the environmental money not necessarily being spent as you know, as ambitiously as, as it needs to be and as effectively as it needs to be. But on top of that, we are also still using this taxpayer's money to, you know, fuel the problems. So it's it's really quite, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of concerns here on, on what we are seeing in the, on the ground. Thank you very much for that. And of course, the tight time frame and, you know, missing deadlines, things like that means one thing at the political level, but on the farmers level, who need to be making decisions for the future, um, Udo, I'm turning to you now, um, you know, for the impact of this on, on farmers who have to be long-term planning? Well, farmers do uh, long-term and short-term planning at the same time. That's their job. Um, having a long-term plan for the farm and having a plan for the next plant season and harvesting season. And so, um, again, um, we as farmers, we need clear offers of the um, cap strategic plans as for the measures uh, already in next summer so the farmers can plan uh, uh, can make their plans for their um, for the winter seed uh, in, in in next uh, autumn and um, so this is our perspective now on the cap strategic plans and um, so we really hope um, that we get really a bit early information, maybe a bit earlier than we had last time with the start of the greening in 2015. Thank you. Dealing with short-term and long-term planning, it feels like a, it feels like a moderation. It feels like what you do as a moderator. Constantly one eye here, one eye in the future. Um, and let's uh, talk now a little bit about um, transparency. It's a theme that's come up um, a few times uh, now. Um, Tassos, I'd like to hear from you on this. I know a number of um, sources and civil society vocal for calling for a transparent process um, throughout the, the, the drafting of the CAP strategic plans. Maybe you can offer some clarity here for us. Um, does the Commission plan to allow access to the drafts or partial drafts of the CAP plans um, exchanged between Member States and the Commission uh, before the final versions are approved? You know, what, I'm trying to understand what information will be publicly accessible throughout this process of developing these CAP strategic plans. Well, uh, first of all, I think we have to realise that... Uh, 
in all the processes that we have, there are the, some things that will be made publicly available and some things that are not made publicly available. I mean, when you have informal discussions with member states where you exchange totally informally certain elements to clarify things, if we go into the process where everything uh, becomes available, the only thing is that we will overburden the process uh, without really helping uh, something. But it has to be clear. And the strategic plans have to be publicly available. The member states are making it publicly available. I don't see any interest in the member states of not making uh, this uh, publicly available. Now, in the process of the, of the observation letters that the, uh, that the Commission is going to do and the final assessment of the member states, we will have to clearly, on the basis of the rules we have, uh, see what will be made available and what will not be made available. But I would like to make and stress one thing in terms of the transparency. What is really missing in terms of the transparency is not the exchange of formal letters between us and the member states or the stakeholders. What is missing in the debate we're having about uh, transparency is to try to take a very close look on the type of information that is already publicly available and we don't debate around it. I mean, do we really need to discuss what type of exchanges we have to realize that when it comes to soil conditions in member states, we do have problems and the problems are specific in certain areas, in certain practices, in certain regions, in certain member states more than in others. This is an information that is already available. I, I believe that what is missing in this process is to have a very concrete and factual debate about what works and what doesn't work and under which conditions we can make all things work better than today. And this is where this uh, proceduralism, I, I'm, I'm expressing here a personal uh, feeling from what I see on that, is actually delaying the decision that we have. The same thing applies with all the discussion. Will the member states make their strategic plans uh, uh, available by the end of the year or not? Who's going to pay the price? I mean, on the 1st of January of 2023, member states will have to implement their strategic plans and will have to have the money to give to their own farmers in all the measures they have. So what's the point of getting stuck, and you used the term before in the debate, on issues like this and miss the big picture? And the big picture is we have to address very specific ch uh, challenges. We have in the public domain the knowledge of what works, what doesn't work, and how. And instead of that, we are bogged down again on how much money will go here and by which date they're going to make an assumption. Well, I'm sorry that I didn't answer this question, but I consider it not to be, I mean, the pertinent one, because when it comes to transparency, we have rules. And on the basis of the rules, of course, the information that has to be made transparent will be made uh, transparent. It's before that that member states now will have to start inviting all the stakeholders in on the consultation processes they have. And that's beyond our control right now. It's their control, their responsibility right now. And I've seen we do actually have a, a question in the chat about that, but I'll get to that in, in a minute. Um, talking about looming deadlines, I'm aware that ours is also. But Thomas, you'd like to come in on this issue of transparency. Um, what, what is your take on, on this? 
We're talking about 30%, more than 30% of the EU budget. We're talking about billions of euros of taxpayers' money. We're talking about the policy that is concerning their health, their direct surrounding in which they're living, beyond all the climate and biodiversity questions. So I think it's an obligation to be as transparent as possible, not just on the side of the Commission, but also very much on the side of the member states, also transparent on who is actually influencing that process, these negotiations on what legal ground and on what purpose. And this transparency, I think, is not debatable. It's an obligation. Thank you very much. And as I said, looming deadlines. Um, so I, I could keep talking to you guys about this uh, for, for much, much longer. But let me turn now to some of the questions we have um, in our chat. And uh, there was one question. It's something that you mentioned, uh, that you touched upon there, Tassos. There's a question here from um, the European Coordination Via Campesina from um, Genevieve Savigny. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. Sorry about that, Genevieve. Um, this is to you, Tassos. Um, she would like to know, in some countries, small farmers associations are not invited to the discussion on national strategic plans. She sees little opportunities to promote um, certain um, practices such as agroecology. She'd like to know um, what can be done about this. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you ha all have to be sure that in all the informal bilateral discussions we have to member states, we stress this repeatedly. And our director general, in two meetings that we had with his counterparts in member states, he made this point. We cannot force it, but it's something that we more than encourage, we keep uh, stressing it. Second, this is one of the issues that will be interesting when we receive uh, the strategic plans of the member states. And we, of course, we will have to see what specific measures have they uh, taken for uh, small farmers and what is, uh, what are the measures for the distribution of support, which is one of the orientations of the common agricultural policy. So that's why I stress once more, it's in the interest of member states themselves to invite all the stakeholders in, and it is our obligation to keep pushing to the extent that we can in this direction, and we do actually. Thank you very much for that answer. I'll take one more question. There is a question here for you, um, Celia, from Niels Madsen. Um, and Niels would like to know um, if you could uh, expand a little bit and substantiate your claim that eco-schemes are being paid to farmers for doing something that I, they are already doing. Perhaps you could just comment on that very quickly before we move to the closing statements. Um, Yes, I must say we've received information on over 100 eco-schemes, so it's a bit hard to remember all of them. But this is something that especially has been very prominent in France as a big issue, uh, which has been explicitly stated as an objective by the French agriculture minister. They want eco-schemes to be inclusive, which means allow farmers to access the money without having to do more. Uh, and we are seeing this trend as well in other countries. Um, there are eco-schemes for if not necessarily things are already being done, maybe minor changes that do not necessarily bring a large environmental benefit um, and, and things that we believe should be in conditionality, like for example, cover crops in winter um, or having um, you know, some fertilizer management plan. Um, these are just sort of common sense farming, are they not? I think any good farmer out there would already be doing this and we should, use a balance of incentives with eco-schemes and also rules to get everyone on a you know decent baseline so that we can then raise the level of ambition and, and not just pay everyone for very ambitious uh, practices. 
But we will be publishing more information soon. Um, sorry that this was not necessarily very concrete, but we are working on uh, on a report where we will give very concrete examples of what we're talking mm -hmm. about here. So, so watch this space. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. We now have uh, five minutes left exactly. So that makes, by my count, exactly one minute for each of you for your closing remarks. Um, so let me turn to you, Tassos, for your closing remark. Oh. Well, let me, as a closing remark, try to, to be practical, starting from the last point mentioned by Celia. I think we have forgotten one thing in all the discussion, that uh, what will be judged in the CAP reform is performance, and performance on the ground. So whether a certain eco-scheme is actually uh, ambitious or not, will be made, uh, will be tested on what it delivers. And if some of these eco-schemes were as widely spread and if they were as common sense as we thought well we have to find an answer why um, farmers don't use it all and that's what i think we need to put uh, the pressure there is a lot of there are a lot of best practices out there that make common sense that work and farmers don't apply them and that's where we need to, uh, to put the pressure on and the pressure should be in trying to convince in various ways that it is in the interest of everybody to introduce this type of measures and measure concretely the performance more than actually uh, the list of measures themselves. Thank you very much. And now moving to you, Thomas, for your closing statement. Well, I think we should see the bigger picture. At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, is our agricultural policy fit for global warming uh, effects and for limiting global warming? Is it fit to stop biodiversity crisis? Uh, is it fit uh, to, to uh, support uh, family farms and uh, medium-sized farms also uh, in terms of rural development? And is it fit to actually provide our citizens with maximum healthy food? Uh, this is the main question I think we should ask ourselves. Uh, and in fact, uh, having uh, a situation where today agriculture is part of the problem, it's part of the destruction, uh, and we know we could make it part of the solution on all of these questions, moving 10% further towards the solution doesn't, still, doesn't lead us out of the destructive field. So uh, I think we can cherish a small little uh, betterings uh, in, in the current procedure, but I think it's just not going far enough, not to my taste, but to what science tells us in terms of climate, in terms of biodiversity, and what we uh, just see in the rural areas that are getting the many people are leaving and villages are dying. This is just what we see on the ground. And unfortunately, all the proposals I've seen up to now are not fit for purpose. Thank you very much um, for that concise statement. Um, Celia, I'll turn to you now for your closing statement. Thank you. Um, I think Thomas has said everything I might have wanted to say on ambition. So I'd like to focus again on what uh, Tassos seems to think is not that important, which is processes, governance, accountability, which are all relying on transparency. Um, transparency is not just a nice thing. It's crucial for citizens and civil society to be able to scrutinize the decisions that are made by their elected representatives. In this case, it's crucial because there's a lot of money in the in the picture, in the, on the, in the balance. And so we really need the Commission to live up to the commitments that have been made at the highest political level, uh, not later than last week by uh, the Commissioner again, and really have full transparency so that we can know what is going on, we can see where the money is being put, and we can 
use that to call out decision makers when they are saying one thing and doing a different thing, which is what is happening now. They are committing to tackle the biodiversity and then putting money in unsustainable irrigation, in intensive livestock farming, in monocultures. This is not okay. We really need better transparency and full commitment from the Commission on this at all levels. Thank you. Udo, let me turn to you now for your reflections on the discussion that we had today. Yeah, thank you. Um, first point again uh, on, on transparency of the process. Um, we made quite a good experience. Uh, I can tell you from my, my organization from DBV in Germany, not to wait for the government, but to have the communication, um, uh, especially to the uh, environmental organizations uh, already in advance. Uh, to talk together in video roundtables, uh, not wait for the government, uh, but identifying the uh, often different priorities, but identifying and talking about and learning. Um, that's an important thing we can do as, as farmers' organizations. Uh, second point uh, and last point is, um, is the question, um, of success. We, we want to make this eco schemes and the whole green architecture a success that it will be hopefully interesting programs for the farmers and that support them um, for their ecologic uh, tasks, but also for their economic um, tasks. You know, the incomes are not the highest of the farmers uh, all over Europe. And um, so we try to bring it together. Thank you. Thank you very much. And last but not least, Alan, let me hear from you for your reflections on what we've heard during this debate. Well, it was a very interesting debate. And I, I sympathize somewhat with what uh, Tassel said that, you know, maybe uh, what's important is the direction of travel and uh, not so much whether issues are legally binding or not. But he also said that uh, it's important to ensure that we have performance, that we actually see progress on the ground. And I think in order to do that, we do need metrics. And I think the issue around whether targets are legally binding or not is precisely the fear that member states will not commit to targets, impact uh, targets in their plans. So I will be judging the plans on the basis of, you know, what is the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, that is aimed for by 2027? What is the reduction in pesticide use? What is the increase in organic area? What is the increase in land uh, set aside for, for nature and habitats? Unless we see these kind of specific commitments uh, in the strategic plans, then I think uh, we really uh, will not have succeeded in this particular reform. Thank you. Thank you very much. That brings today's event to a close. I could have kept going for a lot longer. Um, I want to thank all of our speakers today for this a very dynamic discussion. And of course, to all of you watching, which tuned in, uh, all of you that tuned in for today's event. So just a reminder that you can find this event on your Active's YouTube channel in case you want to relive all the fun all over again. And um, also to look out for some articles we will publish on this theme very shortly. Um, and also be sure to check out your Active's uh, CAP Strategic Plans Tracker. So we're actually tracking the latest movement from all the member states and their state of play on their plans. That, um, that's all from me today. Thank you very much for watching. I'm Natasha Foote. I hope you have a lovely afternoon.